Shane Kilkelly, and you're listening to General Intellect Unit. In this episode, we'll be picking up on part two of our discussion of Red Plenty. If you missed part one, I'd recommend pausing this episode, going back to the previous one and starting from there. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the show. That is where the sort of next chapter um, chapter brings us, where uh, we have this... Uh, Biologist um, Zoya, who's arriving at a, a science town in the, um, the middle of nowhere. Uh, uh, there is there is one point I wanted to bring up about that chapter about Academic Gordok. Um, uh, and just a moment, I gotta find this quote because I wrote it down, but it's too messy to read. <laughs> <laughs> but it's a very important quote, I think. Um, so it says, I couldn't work out whether I was listening to Bohemians disguised as good boys or good boys disguised as Bohemians. You bubble like dreamers, and then it turns out you're dreaming of the five-year plan. Yeah, yeah, this is um, this, this is important So, here. so good. Such mm. an excellent description of this way of thinking. And, like, yeah, I think about myself as a younger person and, like, that's an excellent description of, of the way I used to think. Yeah, absolutely. You know? Or, I, I or see the that way myself. that, like, is characteristic of um, these kinds of prophets of modernity, right? Like Saint-Simon or something. That, yeah, it's like you're... Like, if, if I think about the inspiration I feel about, you know, these kind of utopian projects, and then I think about what the actual implementation details would be, there's such a huge contrast, right? That like <laughs> the reality is like, oh well, yeah. Like I, I mean, I think these are wonderful ideas, but mm. probably I wouldn't be the one implementing any of these things because I don't have the skill to do it, and I don't really know where I would fit into that picture. <laughs> but the yeah. picture is still very exciting to me, right? Uh, so I thought that you was just never, an excellent. You got to never think about consequences; it ruins the fun. You know, yeah, you got to yeah. stay stay dreaming constantly, <laughs> and, and, and really, you just get this kind of sense of like lightness um, about this place, right? Oh the, yeah, definitely. There's a there's a real levity to it, and I think they, they um, the character does sort of describe it in terms of like um, that having these discussions with these uh, these other comrades here um felt like she felt lighter for it like whole like a weight was lifting off of her and they could um they could like pick up the world's problems and like toy with them and turn them around and look at them from different angles and there's like a there's a there's a there's a like a a levity and a kind of playfulness with being able to manipulate these concepts and also know that they will in some way be reflected in the kind of reality around them as well. Yes, I think that's it's really important, this this idea of play, because it comes up in the uh, chapter on shadow prices as well, that, uh, you know, this idea that, that, that the planner needs to be able to play in order to do their job effectively. Um, and, and I mean, I just, I look at all this stuff and I just see so much of silicon valley in what is described here uh this is you know that kind of perpetual focus on youthful exuberance um and like casualness um and 
the, the sort of dreams of modernity and modernization and the, the playing with concepts and the sort of uh, willful ignorance of uh, real conditions mm, yeah. um, of, of life uh, outside of this bubble. I definitely recognize this as like um, colleagues and I at the at the pub with like, you know, five or ten drinks inside us um, going through all this kind of stuff. Yeah, like the, these these sort of wild dreams of like uh, applying a, um, you know, frankly brutal sort of technocracy to the world and like seeing it as a perfectly <laughs> great thing to do. Um, so it's a, it's a good cautionary tale at least. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, there's, there is something like, there's something interesting in how this is presented as like it is um, presented as a bright optimism, but there's something quite sinister about it as well. And I think uh, Zoya even has a, a little bit of a passage where she, um, the way the mathematicians speak kind of reminds her of, of, of her own trade and the kind of idea of like, um, human beings being um, uh, simply vehicles for genetic information to to play with and like these kind of she has this image of like a dark armada moving through time and using humanity as its vehicle and it's kind of like quite a quite a sinister turn um, to her imaginings about this and like the the mathematicians reminder of that kind of idea of like well it's the numbers that matter and it's the, the the flesh and blood beings are just the vehicle through which the numbers um, operate. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and that that is a view of the world that has become more and more prevalent. And if we ever get to talking about machine dreams, that is the subject of that book, right? Is that how computing became a model of reality writ large? That like even so it certainly is the case that, like, as we see in this chapter, there's this convergence between biology and computing that's happening, right? Um, but it goes even further than that, where, like, the modeling that sort of advanced physics does now conceives of the world fundamentally as a computing machine. That that it's it's not that it's being just being done on computers, it's that our metaphorical intuitive understanding of the world is in terms of computation. Um, computation as this kind of detached, generalized process that represents the fundamental ontology we live with. And you can kind of see that getting off the ground here. Oh, definitely, yeah. I think, like, if I'm remembering um, some part of All Watched Over by Machines of Living Grace, if I'm remembering that correctly, I think that's something that Adam, Adam Curtis gets into, the kind of, like... The fallacy that we tend to make where we create these simplified computer models, or we, we use computing to solve a problem, we use it to abstract something, but then we start to mistake the model for reality, and that leads us astray in some pretty weird kind of ways. Um, yeah, and I mean, I mean, we're sounding very erudite here, but in in the end notes of all these chapters, it's just like Adam Curtis, Murawski, <laughs> like these are the books that they're citing as like yeah. the inspirations for these chapters. So <laughs> of course they're they're present in, in these chapters, <laughs> but uh, you know, I, I think we may be falling into the same sort of simulacrum. Uh, hmm. uh, <laughs> anyhow, <laughs> yeah. Oh no. But um, at some point in this chapter as well, the kind of like they receive news that like the price of meat is being adjusted upwards, and to the to the cyberneticians here, that's that's good news because it'll it'll alter beef production and like it'll kind of I don't know validate some of their ideas. But that brings us into the next chapter, which is um, located in 
another corner of the country where there's quite a bit of civil unrest um, about precisely this, that the, the, the price of meat is going up. And it happens in this location to have been combined with... Um, already running like poor conditions housing shortages low wages and a price uh, a price rise and a pay cut at the same time which brings the workers yeah. out um to protest outside the city hall um and it, it ends in a massacre like they're just kind of shot down by the um the the military and yeah it's like this this is like no the, while while the kind of science guys are kind of celebrating the celebrating the abstraction of what this change will mean there are very real problems happening on the ground because of it. Yeah, and this is like you can see the 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 fantasy of power on the one hand, <laughs> and then the reality of power on the other hand. That's the the contrast that's at work here, right? That oh yeah, you can abstract these things, but that is accomplished at a price, right? And that price is usually something that is enforced by the state through violence. That, that makes the reality conform to the model. Um, and, yeah, I mean, again, it's like you can just point to Silicon Valley and, like, the crazy amounts of social engineering that happens in order to suit their whims. Um, and, and it's like, this is... There's the ideal, and then there's the reality that, that <laughs> actually happens, right? Yeah. Um, it's not, it's not um, National Guardsmen shooting protesters in the street but it is it is police in military gear shooting rubber bullets at people it is tear gas it is kettling people it is you know um implementing sort of like stop and frisk and 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 all kinds of violence in order to reshape urban landscapes and bribes paid to politicians all kinds of things that are necessary to make these abstract ideas come to life. I think the important thing to point out here is that this massacre is what you get from one-sided planning. Yes. Right? Yeah. That that the orders come down from on high and the planners don't aren't even aware. Like the the people in Akadem Gordok literally did not know a single thing about what happened here. Yeah, they won't hear right? about us ever. <laughs> like, they, will, they never heard anything because this was all covered up. Like, the blood was washed off the street, the, 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 the square was paved over, and everyone was kept quiet. Yeah, and um, the, the, the most you would get in the way of an explanation is, oh, there was unrest and the dissidents were dealt with. And that was like they were in, they, they they went on trial and were imprisoned apparently um is the explanation yeah and there. what what um what information did come out about it was um kind of like through the grapevine and dis dissident networks and was was kind of distorted and you know that creates a certain amount of kind of like conspiracy theory thinking and and that kind of thing which can can discredit it anyway um, I mean, yeah. Um, I mean, I, I guess we should just mention that the name of the town was uh, Novo Cherkask, um, which was, you know, an actual place, and there was an actual massacre. Although the the timing is adjusted a little bit by the author yeah. here, which is a bit of a theme I think throughout the the fictionalization here that um, it a lot of this is real stuff, um, but is tweaked to make it uh, kind of fit and. Um, fit the kind of flow of a narrative format um but speaking of the kind of bad planning the kind of intro to chapter or part four um 
brings us through the kind of like the actualities of how the um, the planning process worked. And I was kind of like stunned actually to kind of really read through this. And it's like, it, like for the planning bureau, it takes basically the entire year to go around the loop a couple of times of like objectives being set from the top, those objectives being sent out to all the kind of regions and the firms and such, and then to have the feedback where they return, well, well, we can't actually meet that target, we need this, or, well, if we're going to meet that target, we need more rubber to be shipped over from this place. And they, they go around the loop again, and they kind of redistribute the numbers, and then they kind of like, and this, this takes an entire year, basically, and, and like barely scrapes by into the deadline, you know, where it's like um, actually put into effect. And it's like, I don't know, really, really easy to see why this would be a desirable thing to optimize the shit out of this thing. Because, like, taking, like, 11 and a half months to formulate a plan for the economy and, like, not even being sure you've got it right must be um, pretty hellish. <laughs> yeah, the 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 process is very slow. And in a way, um, it's kind of like a realization of the um, image of the market that is given in the shadow prices chapter right yeah um, yeah <laughs> uh, or sorry from the photograph chapter right uh, yeah the, yeah uh just that it is this sort of serial process that very very slowly works through problems um it's not in real time but it's like <laughs> there's no do-overs there's no parallel <laughs> plans right yeah. it's just it takes up all the efforts of Goss' plan just to make this one plan. Um, and, yeah, you can see the advantages that would be afforded by simulation or com uh, computation, uh, network technology, all those kind of things. Um, but the, the, there's sort of a reference at the end of that, that introduction um, to, like it says, uh, what is it... Um, all clear so far <laughs> right? yeah. so like you go through this huge process of back and forth and control figures and adjustments and so so on and then it's just as all clear so far and apparently this is a reference to kim stanley robinson talking about the u.s military procurement pro uh, process and actually i i, I heard um an interview with someone from the military on uh on by any means necessary and and she was saying like yeah you know this procurement process is like something that has to start like three years in advance right for this like because the u.s military is basically a giant plant economy right um and uh and and the the whole planning process is probably just about as complex and convoluted as what you would see in this chapter. Yeah, definitely. Um, and we, we do get a bit of a look into um, the kind of inner workings of it in the the, the, the immediate sort of chapter where um, we meet Mokov, who works at the at Gosplan, and he's he's kind of a, like a veteran of the process. Um, he has kind of he has kind of insight into like he, he kind of knows. He just he just knows how it works, you know. He's got he's got the the magic touch that can make any of these adjustments work. But he has a kind of an interesting line about like he he kind of understands that this uh, you could never capture the activity of something so huge in three hundred and seventy three folders. Like he's they have this huge room of like um, 
you, you, all the records and all the the details, the plan, and like he goes in there and gets an abacus and goes messing with it. But he he understands that this is an abstraction; it's not the actual economy. Um, but it has worked. It has worked for thirty years, and he's he's kind of adamant on that that like this this might be a weird sort of way of doing it, uh, but it does seem to actually bear out results. Uh, but the interesting yeah, thing here he is just he, doesn't understand why it works, yeah, which is something we're going to find out when we go further down the line. <laughs> it, is, it is absolutely mystified um, the 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 workings of this thing. But like the the, the conceit here is that he's received a. Um, a kind of a notification from a, 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 a plant in Solovets um, producing um, producing some sort of cord or linen or something, but um, one of their one of their lines is is down because like the machine got damaged in an accident, um, and they need another one of those machines, and it's like got to be he's got to look at like well, if you don't provision it, then the manufacturing of tires will be affected, and that will ripple out through the economy. So he's kind of putting it together, and he's like, well, okay, fine, we'll we'll. You know, it'll be an inconvenience for the manufacturers of this machine, but like we'll we'll add an, another one to the um, the thing. I know it's it's kind of nice because there's an upgraded model anyway, so that's kind of cool. Um, just put through the order. Um, yeah, and it it says he uh, the way he thinks about this is really interesting. He says uh, a reminder of planned dis- discipline would do no harm, but they <laughs> would have their PNSH one eighty fourteen S. And so would all of his in- enterprises that were expecting one. Ural Mash could be Sue some other way. In the box next to the word production on the left-hand side of the new page, he wrote firmly, 18. There. There was the budget of pain shared out, and shared out more or less evenly, since there must be a budget of pain. Yeah. <laughs> He's got a hell of a way of thinking So apparently this. this character was based on the, the Grand Inquisitor in the Brothers Karamazov. Uh, and uh, yeah, it's, it's it's very interesting. It's like mm. because he's like, oh, those number crunchers in Academ Gordok—they don't understand how this process actually works, right? Like, like they think it's all about just coming up with a a, a number or like a a, a total uh, solution to the plan. But I understand that there's this budget of pain, <laughs> and I have to share it out evenly. And so he's about like that that that's his sort of semi personal understanding of the people he's working with yeah and it it's but it very much is a personal understanding like there isn't much of a science to this it's just um the practice he's picked up over the course of how however many decades he's been doing this um yeah and there there's sort of a moment where he's like this this industrial accident does seem kind of suspicious, and in the good old days, we would have just killed everyone involved. But these are new times, so I'm just going to give them a, a, a you know a wrap on the, the machine. On the, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like I'll, I'll just you know give them a reprimand and give them the machine, right? And and we can see later on that his decision not to kill these managers is part of the reason why the system starts to break down. Yeah. Because the system of punishment is becoming lax and it starts to lead to perverse outcomes, right? Because as long as the system was enforced by terror on pain of death, it worked to a certain degree, but when you lax things up in a system that is all about giving commands from on high it does start to get a little bit loose. 
It does, yeah, and it sort of masks a a lower layer of just petty corruption and sort of um, looseness in the sort of bottom layers that um, that these these guys can't really even account for. Like he has he has no idea of like the stuff we'll see later. Or um, one of the things we see immediately in the next ca- next chapter is that it it was in fact sabotage. Um, that the the Solovets guys were kind of like worried that they, they couldn't meet the plan because it turned out that that machine was kind of shitty at its job. But they couldn't tell anyone that the machine was shitty at its job. Right, yeah, exactly, right. Like, there was there was no... There was a bad incentive there. Like, they couldn't... They couldn't, like... Because um, they, they'd probably be shot for that anyway. But if they wrecked it in a convenient sort of accident, um, they might get provisioned with the newer one. Um, when so this... Like, he, he was kind of... The, the, the guy was kind of on the money with this. That, like... It, when in his initial suspicion that it could have been um could have been a ruse you know because it was um he just didn't understand why it might be like he tried he tries to like puzzle through all the reasons why this might have happened he's like it just doesn't make sense and then it's, oh, a, it's a tractor it's because... parked on an embankment and it slipped and it's like no it just it just seems too plausible you know we'll won't investigate <laughs> it's like well they they made their targets last term so why would they destroy their own equipment that doesn't make any sense and then we actually see what happens and it's like oh okay <laughs> yeah uh, yeah and there's there's a real discrepancy here between the abstraction and the actuality like we're starting to see this now that like um like in the first half of the book we've been introduced to this idea of like these um these mathematicians could introduce these abstractions and kind of like bring rationality and control to the economy. And we're starting to now see the discrepancy between that view of the world and the kind of um, truth that plays out on the ground. Um, it gets especially messy when in the next chapter where we're introduced to um, Chakushkin, uh, who's like a fixer or a buying agent, and it's for kind of the state. And it's kind of his, his job is to make this. Um, the fulfillment of the plan and the kind of allocation of these resources go a bit more um, smoothly than it um, than it ordinarily would. Um, well, he is he is strictly speaking a criminal, right? Ah, like, I see. I didn't quite pick that up. Um, he he is a a quote unquote pusher, which was a what was a type of um, black marketeer that existed in the Soviet Union, um, and because he is encouraging deviation from the plan mm-hmm. he is committing a crime right right because he's he's sort of like moving the means of production around without the authorization of the state um which is not permitted i was um, under the impression like i think because he had like a, a nice office and got phone calls from people who seemed to be well placed in the state or in, in the sort of management hierarchy, I, I was under the impression that he was somehow part of the official um, running of things. But no, that, that doesn't well, make a lot he more sense. he is part of it. <laughs> he's just <laughs> part of it. He's a part of it that cannot be admitted no. by the state, right? Like, <laughs> he is actually helping to fulfill the plan, but he's doing it in a way that cannot be um acknowledged by by anyone who he is working with yeah and like he in this chapter he sort of talks about how uh, there's a lot of messy human interactions going on in this kind of like vast economy and um that like well if, if you want your part of if you want your like provisions to come through quickly you got to know the right people you know this sort of thing um it's just this petty corruption this small low level sort of corruption that um seems to permeate the whole damn economy at this point. 
um, and that is kind of like hived off and not really visible to the the actual planners. Um, I mean, it's, it's questionable as to what what extent they would be aware of it, even um, because as far as they can, t- I, I, I'd imagine from the top levels of Gosplan, the, the, from what they can tell, they write a number in a box on a form, and that number becomes real somehow. Like it's the, 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 the somehow the mystery meet, you know, the there's there's a mystery as to how it actually comes about, and this this is how it happens. And like he he has dealings with the um, the sort of the mafia, like to. And like it's 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 kind of strange because like it's he hands over a big wad of cash and it's to um, get the speedy delivery of some small quantity of material for a construction job to finish, you know, for for another client. Um, it's a small small tweaks around the around the margins that make the economy actually work. Uh, yes, uh, because it, like essentially they he is making adjustments in supply allotments in order to make sure that the managers can meet the targets they need to meet, right? Um, and it's like, oh, well, you have a little... It's it's very much... Um, if I don't know if you've ever seen that uh, episode of uh, Deep Space Nine where um, uh, Quark's nephew is teaching his friend uh, Jake about, like, the Ferengi rules of acquisition. And, like, essentially they're in this kind of problem. Like, they need to get some kind of means of production, but because of the war situation, it's difficult to get a hold of. So Quark's nephew goes through this big, long process of, like, oh, I'll give you some of this and then take some of that. And, like, basically going through these favors in order to arrange to get this equipment, right? Right. And it's all kind of played off as, like, this absurd thing because they are living in this society of socialist plenty, so this Ferengi obsession with profit-making and deal-making is kind of ridiculous. But uh, this was, like, the actual way that the plan worked, right? This is how the budget of pain was dealt out, (laughs) was that it was done through these pushers... Uh, it was done through like personal connections between people, um, and it was also done through the mafia. And like these were the actual mechanisms of the economy that allowed it to function. And that is why the mafia came out of the end of the Soviet Union so immensely powerful, is because they were actually like a core and fundamental institution of the way that the economy functioned yeah they, they were um, running the whole game all along <laughs> you know um, yeah they, they just you know they they grew out of the gulags and then they slowly but surely started to become more and more useful until eventually they just took over the whole country right um so yeah it, it's uh it's something that is completely obscured to our good friend the goss planner but that's the way it actually works and you know, they, they do say that the, the mafia was kind of restricted in its growth because they relied on cash, and cash couldn't actually buy very much in the Soviet Union because it was this uh, seller's market, right, um, where it wasn't... Like, the thing about the pusher that is really, really interesting is, like, he considers himself to be the opposite of a salesman. Like, it's like, I am a salesman, but I'm also the opposite of a salesman because he grew up during the NEP period and he was working as a salesperson. So he understood what it was to like make a deal and get a sale, right? You, you always have, in a capitalist system, you always or almost always have more supply than there is demand, right? 
and you have to you have to make those sales. You have to go from the marketers and you have to go uh, around to people and say, oh, please buy this thing, right? Each of us only wants to buy one vacuum cleaner out of the like 20 that's on display. But in the social in the, in the Soviet system, it was more of a case of convincing the people who held things to to sell them. <laughs> yeah. Right. So that's that's the thing about this this factory that has this this machine that they the the um like or sorry the the machine factory that is producing the machine that the um, textile factory needs, right? It's already allocated in the plan that this machine should go from factory A to factory B. So that's all above board, but they need someone to come in and convince the people who are producing the means of production to actually make the sale they're supposed to make because of the way that there's a persistent tendency towards hoarding in this system. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, but like that sort of like the way this um, machine problem kind of works out here is actually kind of horrifying where like he, 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 he speaks to a friend about it and it turns out that this is a kind of a, a budgetary issue and that like <laughs> on top of that, like the, all eyes are on this facility because there's just something fucking strange about how this machine got offline. But the thing is the, the upgraded machine would be easier and quicker to manufacture but it costs less than the old model. So producing it would ruin the maker's numbers for the year. Yes, so they wouldn't hit their target, and so their careers would be ruined. Right, right? and and like it, it, it costs less because it weighs less. It's a better machine yeah. that weighs less and is more efficient, but it's the wrong thing to do to fucking make it and distribute it. Because, yeah, they're using a pricing system that is based on weight, Ugh. right? And 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 because because there is no market, they can't get market prices. So they have if if they are coming up with a price, they have to come up with a price based on something, right? And the thing they decided to go by was weight. Yeah, because it's the most obvious property of any object. <laughs> like... Right, right. <laughs> so like these these are the. Um, these are the kinds of problems that you get in a non-monetary mm -hmm. planned economy, um, which like uh, Mises attacked, right? Um, in saying like, this is a completely irrational system, it will never work. Well, actually it can kind of work. If it's not but, done this way. <laughs> yeah, I mean, even this way, it kind of works, right? Like mm. the society did exist for a number of decades. Um, but, you have to think very, very hard about the criteria you're using to develop prices um, and the way you do that if you're going to use a price system uh, because we treat prices as a given and obvious thing in a capitalist economy, but you just can't do that in a socialist economy. Um, yeah. You so, need, um, well, you need some of the mechanisms that some of these cyberneticians are coming up or something analogous to it where that's like a fully thought out um way of like communicating some um communicating some information about the various objects in the system and how they're going to relate to yes, each other. Yes. And you need accurate supply information, right? Accurate supply information which they cannot get because everybody at the managerial level is constantly in a position of 
desperately trying to get a hold of things while fudging the numbers to make it seem that they've fulfilled their targets. Whilst hoarding things and, yeah, just... Yes. Everybody wants to hoard as much as they can. The, the, The Soviet Union was a incredible system of material hoarding. There's a really, really good uh, paper I read about this once that just the stockpiles that existed everywhere because everybody was just trying to cling on to as much as they can because they were always worried about a supply shortage that would throw off their fulfillment numbers and therefore cause their careers to be ruined. Yeah, and like that's kind of what shoots a hole in this... um cybernetician sort of dream um is that like even if they could computerize the the economy and then they could figure out getting enough computing power to process it and they could do it quick enough and they could convince everyone to get on board with it um there's they just have the shittiest data you could possibly imagine like everyone's everyone's lying everyone's fudging the numbers constantly there is no quick way of getting a grip on what commodities are moving where it's just yeah, it can't, can't really work at that kind of level of technology. Um, yeah, there's a dearth of trust in the system and a dearth of uh, surveillance, right? Like, even though there's spies everywhere, <laughs> uh, right? You got to have them spy on trucks, you see, it's, uh, and um, trailers full of bricks and stuff. They got to keep an eye on that stuff because that would be, that would have been useful for the planning. <laughs> but, um, the, the intro to part five then kind of brings on to a little bit of a kind of a, an explainer of like um, kind of why this society degraded over time in the way it did. And the kind of the core of the idea is that like the um, initial sort of revolutionaries were very much like philosopher kings who felt compelled to like act like thugs in order to like carry out this kind of plan. Um, but that the society they created or the structure they created and the state that they put in place and its bureaucracy um was optimized in such a way that like ordinary thugs would be attracted to it and ascend its ranks um who would only pretend to care about the ideas and then eventually give up even on the pretension of caring about those so you get this kind of like uh ideological and intellectual decline over time um through the generations until you end up with like the later stages of the soviet union where it's just like proper old school gangsters running the place who don't actually keep, like have have no affiliation even or no like um no ambition to carry out the plans that were laid by the um the people that came before them yeah and the final reform movement basically just ran into that problem among among other things but you know it's just Many of the uh, the party members and managers were just complete cynics at this point. They because there is this system of meritocracy that was based on one keeping your mouth shut and complying with power, and two following metrics that didn't make any sense. It produced this complete cynicism all the way down the line um and you know that's it's very similar to what you see happen um to education under charter schools right they're run ostensibly on meritocratic grounds um there's a whole bunch of like data points and testing and all kinds of like fancy doodads that are done in order to try to allocate resources rationally 
Um, but ultimately, what it comes down to is it's all just about uh, corruption and class war. Yeah. Right? That, <laughs> like... <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. but, like <laughs> <laughs> These schools are being set up in order to break teachers' unions and in order to establish new techniques of control over impoverished neighborhoods. That's what it's really about. And it, that and like that encourages enormous cynicism in teachers, right, to live in that system. And you can kind of just see that these sort of like low-key progressive degenerations of public spiritedness and faith in other people that are characteristic of neoliberalism um, are just like cranked up to the nth degree in the Soviet Union. Yeah. Right. It's um it's kind of interesting that like through through its whole development, the Soviet Union kind of mirrors the the rest of the West and its kind of modernity. But it's like the Soviet Union is that on intramuscular steroids. It's just like it's more hierarchical, it's more fucking crazy, it's more cynical eventually. It's initially more ambitious. It's um yeah, there's like a real, real distinct kind of mirroring going on there. Or not a mirroring, but like a a parallel, um, but like amped up in um I I suppose a typically Russian sort of way. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. Um but yeah, and so like I mean, but the, by the by the sort of early sixties, Khrushchev is like he's surrounded by this kind of this state that are like his, or even like his his whole cadre are, are people he's appointed himself and there is his people, but he is starting to alienate them because like he's um, starting to seem kind of a bit unstable and, and dangerous to the uh, to the rest of the his his sort of people, um, and he's he's making bigger and bigger sort of promises and trying kind of more he's kind of like screwing up pretty consistently in um agriculture and foreign policy and trade and he's just kind of getting angrier and more impatient and confused and um things just aren't sort of going his way at all which ends eventually in him getting chucked in 1964 and uh, and replaced and we get a we get a nice little chapter that's kind of like his from his driver's perspective where he's kind of like bringing him out to the uh the countryside to be um just kind of uh, packaged away in his uh, his countryside house for uh, his retirement. Yeah, and it's just like a matter of like going from the the Zill car all, and then it's like oh the Zill the Zill's taken away, and then they bring <laughs> in the Chica, and the driver's like yeah, yeah it's fine, Chica's not okay. so bad, you know, yeah. it's it's all right. Uh, but then the horror of horrors, they bring in the next car, and it is the Volga. Right, and it's like, oh, then he knew it was like it was over. It was really. real plebeian car, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And I mean, the, this is a thing that you can imagine happening easily in a capitalist system. But the thing is that, like, the connection between political power and economic allotment is so exact in this society, right? That it's like, oh, okay, you've been like you've been demoted this many ranks. And because what you get in your material goods is not really determined by how much money you make, it's determined by what's provided to you directly by the state. It's just this extremely exact representation of your demotion. <laughs> yeah. This is exactly the car you get, which corresponds to exactly this rank of person. That's who you are now. There's something comical in how the, the the cars do come in sequence, right? Like, and it's 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 almost as if he's descending the ranks, 
like a like a ball going downstairs, right? <laughs> like it's, yeah, he's, he's not demoted immediately to the to the his his sort of final uh, final level. He kind of like descends each of them in in turn, which is kind of comical. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it is. It is definitely is. Uh, there's a little bit of like a, a sort of um, just this progressive dejection, like <laughs> yeah. like it, it's like the the bargaining process of grieving, right? Like, like well, you know, it's not so bad. And then they bring out the Volga, and you're like, oh shit, mm, this is pretty bad. Oh, um, yeah. and poor poor Khrushchev is crushed by this. Um, he does. He's like not not in good spirits at all. Um, yeah, they're all they're all crammed into this little car. Um, yeah, but um, we're kind of coming up on probably one of the one of the sort of last significant chapters before we start to wrap things up, in which um, Emil is kind of brought in front of state planning um, to kind of talk over these reforms that are going to be brought in. This is 1965, and it sort of um, doesn't go terribly well, um, and mostly because the the planners intend to adopt some of the reforms that he's been um, suggesting, but notably with the absence of the shadow prices, which he insists are just absolutely critical. Like, there is no point in doing these reforms if you don't do them all at the same time. Or, like, especially, the sh like, you, you could lose some other detail, but the shadow prices are the critical component. Um, because otherwise you're going to end up with insane kind of um, misaligned incentives where... Um, the, the system will shake itself apart um, by his reckoning. Yeah, so there's they're going to implement a uh, profit criterion for tar uh, for planning targets, but the thing is that the prices that are going to be used to evaluate the profit are not going to be based on um, the system of linear planning or linear programming that they've they've been planning to use. Right, the shadow prices they've been planning to create. So because that, because the origin or the basis of the prices is irrational, the entire system will be irrational. And on top of that, they want to have a profit incentive and also a fulfillment target in material terms. And so the, the planners will always be like, well, which one do I follow? I don't know. Um, so it's just going to create this complete breakdown of any kind of rationality in the planning system. Um, but for Koisigan, uh, it's just like, well, this is a reasonable compromise, right? Like we can do these reforms and we're not gonna go too far. They think about it in very just sort of like political terms, it's, right? Yeah, like, it's real politics. Let's, let's find the compromise position here. Yeah. Um, and like uh, Emil storms out, or I think he's kind of semi-ejected from the building really. Um, but he's he's taken for a bit of a stroll around the the park by uh, Mokov, who we we saw a bit earlier, um, and he sort of emphasizes. He tries to kind of like talk him around because like what we're what we're seeing here is this um, conversation between the state apparatus and uh, kind of naive idealistic um, mathematicians, um, and Mokov kind of emphasizes the that the the reform collides with the need for stability and that they're. Our economy has its faults, but it feeds and clothes our citizens better than a large majority of the people on the planet. Um, and like we, we can see now that we've definitely arrived in this um, era of like a comfortable status quo, um, and we're probably going to sit there at the expense of improvement. Yeah, and, and like the 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 Bolshevik state 
the party state was established in order to do this sort of like bold um extreme project of modernization to just drive towards full communism as aggressively as possible but by inches it became a system that was about perpetuating its own existence right you go from from modernization plans to stability concerns and from stability concerns to personal graft right mm, yeah um and like it's kind of like easy to see why it happens though because or, or like one of the reasons that Mokov is kind of explaining for them rejecting this um these particular set of reforms that are like um as crucial to the success of the plan is that the present system allows them to ex exercise discretion and to make human adjustments that the machine could never account for. Uh, and Emil responds by like, but optimal prices don't contain errors. And then, of course, he gets the rebuttal, well, like, do, don't they? Like, it's so yeah. obvious to the, um, to the planners that, like, that's a fucking silly idea. Like, the, the notion that you could get this right in one go is insane. But, like, it's not... That 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 like uh, objection just isn't clear to Emil at all. Like it, it's as if he's never really considered that the um, computerization could be wrong. It's it's very much the economics professor talking to the business school professor, right? The, it's like <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, we're seeing the kind of like technological hubris and the sort of naivety in in Emil, but this kind of like smarmy pragmatism in Mokov, which is uh it's quite a fun little scene. Um, and he kind of leaks a bit as well that like the party does seem to be semi-acknowledging that they are abandoning the pursuit of full communism without really admitting to it. And Emil is struck by this and thinks he's got, he's got to actually kind of reevaluate his uh, perspective on the world. Um, but it closes out with a kind of an interesting sort of anecdote from Mokov where he kind of like relates a story about um, back in his early days where he was he and his team were tasked with um, basically just burning bonds in a big old furnace to um, clear out capital or, or something. I think there was some objective need it needed to be met. Um, basically, the, the the state owed debts to people like oh, they had yeah. war bonds. Uh, and they were just like, well, we'll just burn all of those. <laughs> it's um, it's pretty, it's powerful sort of imagery. But he, he sort of sums it up with like, money will never be allowed to have the last word here. It will never be allowed to be active. It will never be permitted to become an autonomous power. And that's it. Like, there's no fucking way they're going to allow computerized money to take over this society. <laughs> um, it kind of it reminds you a little bit of our kind of financialized capital. Like, um, and like... Yeah, there, there really is a, a heart to that, that like the the, the plan that um, these uh, scientists and math mathematicians was, were proposing was like kind of cool in the abstract and like I think has definitely the, the kernel of a great idea in there. But like under the conditions they had um, in the Soviet Union at the time, it would have been insane to implement it, um, to give this Yeah, because we system. saw what happened when the might, when the, the, price of meat alone went up right uh -huh. <laughs> yeah now imagine the price of everything goes everywhere yeah constantly price of everything in the entire economy is going to be adjusted up or down in one one uh planning term mm -hmm. or like in the span of seconds you know um there's a, yeah um, i mean in, in a way that might be better but like the 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 if if it was say like a three-month term in, in adjustments and it was just like oh crap like 
everything has been thrown out of whack, right? Like it's 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 wow. Yeah, it's crazy. So ultimately here the 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 human bureaucracy needs to retain control. Um and you know, I think because I think they, they are aware at this point that like there's there's too much of a human touch in the the planning of this system to allow it to be computerized. Um and it's it's not a it's not a realm in which they can afford to let um uh, mathematicians who've lived relatively comfortable lives in Siberia like play with this stuff. I mean, you know, the word play came up before, but I think that's that is legitimately how um, Emil and his cohort saw that um, as a, a mix between play and work. And like, no, you can't really can't really afford that. Um, no, the budget of pain must be mm. must be respected. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so we get a we get a chapter then where um, we we return Speaking to Galina. Speaking of budgets of pain, <laughs> uh huh. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Jesus, this is a, this is quite a literal one. <laughs> where uh, Galina, who we we saw at the um, uh, the exhibition way back, um, is now kind of living a fairly mediocre sort of life in uh, in Moscow. But um, she's she's the, the majority of the chapter is taken up with her uh, arriving at a hospital to give birth, and uh, just these shitty fucking conditions and like. There's no morphine available at all for her until she kind of um, makes a point of uh, insisting that her husband is a, a you know powerful person in the party, and then she gets uh, gets a, a little injection, a nice nice little tasty treat to give, uh, give take a bit of the edge off. Um, right, because the the whole story here is pretty interesting, where there was a method of psychoprophylaxis that was developed by a Soviet scientist um, in order to uh, like encourage natural childbirth but this was adopted as like the official policy of the Soviet Union and then it was never actually successfully rolled out right like they didn't actually train people to properly instruct anyone in the method oh yeah she shows up here and like uh, they're like oh something about this this method and she's like what nobody said anything about this and like even the nurse can't even like take the time to explain it to her in the moment she just chucked yeah and then the person the person who did go to the classes like didn't actually get anything useful because the person who was teaching her didn't actually understand the method and so in the end, all it really becomes is an excuse not to spend money on morphine, right? And 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 the only way that she's able to get around that is by insisting on her status. So again, it's just showing that like there is this sort of very innovative idea that has come up by us come up with by a Soviet scientist, and then they try to implement the idea, and it's a complete catastrophe, and it ends up just becoming this farce, right? Yeah. Um, um, yeah. It certainly is farcical, and that, that's 1966 by the time that happens. And, like, um, farce comes up in the kind of intro to part six as well, where we sort of start to wrap up a few threads. But that, um, yeah, the, the reforms did nothing to slow or to stop the slowing of the the growth rate. Um, oil money helped to prop up the economy from 1969 onwards. Uh, you got a couple of, some luxury items were made available, you know, like your, your sort of washing machines and your TVs and such. Um, Soviet citizens started to be able to take vacations, but um, it really wasn't enough to like have both, uh, have like expanded consumption and uh, a new, the new industrial revolution that they were trying to plan for. Um, 
and you know all the military spending all all together like it wasn't really enough for that at all yeah and i remember i was doing research last year for a tabletop game i was considering writing about the uh the stasi um so i was doing research about the gdr and it pretty much followed the same historical trajectory there like after the end of the stalin period there was sort of this push towards high tech and um creating like a a new sort of capital intensive and innovative economy uh but when that failed it just kind of fell back into this like limping along mediocrity until uh until the final collapse um so yeah so that you know it's you you know that your socialist economy has collapsed when or is about to collapse when you only have oil wealth left to save you right (laughs) it's like we couldn't actually make an effective productive system so we're just going to collect rent um and dole it out to people like i mean by that measure like saudi arabia is is a a sterling example of socialism right um (laughs) which is certainly is it yeah Um, and um yeah by the by that time like the the, the decline had really really started to fully set in um the all all talk of full communism had been abandoned at that point um and it, it had become a bizarre system that was um it was it was an economy of bloat rather than growth at that point. Um, yeah, because the the people still needed jobs, right? So there's just this kind of pointless production continued production for the sake of production. Once again, creating this like strange parody of capitalism, right? Like it's this, it's like you know Marx says uh, i think somewhere in capital volume one he's talking about production for the sake of production money for the sake of money but like actually that was realized in the soviet system at the end there where it was just like well we make the things because we make the things well that's what we do right, right? this is the thing and it's, it's a theme throughout all of this that like you you get really good at the thing you do right like and that that becomes your expertise and like that was that was true of the bureaucracy. It was true of the kind of like entire economy, where just like making shit at, at a fucking huge velocity was um, the expertise. Um, you just keep doing it. Um, yeah, and it's like the quality doesn't matter. It's just how much steel you produce, right? Mm-hmm. Just like, <laughs> like this, like you know, they're, they're like churning out steel and just throwing it in a fucking lake somewhere, probably because like. You gotta get rid of it <laughs> it's like kind of just steel lying around it'll it'll make things yeah. look ugly <laughs> uh yeah like a real real fucked up kind of system um but so like the, the next chapter unified system is one which lebedev the um computer designer um is waiting waiting to be to for a meeting um and is kind of running through a lot of the a lot of the chapter is actually kind of a description of like what happens to cells due to like mutations he's like a smoker so um he's developing a cells cancer. upon cells interlinked yeah those <laughs> millions and billions of them um but yeah so it's a, it's a it's a chapter in which like i think it, it has something to say about like um deviations and fixes and countermeasures and maintaining homeostasis in a complex system but um the big the sort of result of that is he, he starts coughing up blood and he's probably not got much uh, left for the world um the in the next in the following chapter, um, the uh, science town in um, Akademgorodok, 
but it's it's basically kind of dismantled or i mean it's 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 being uh, the pressure is being put on the so, the social clubs are being closed um zoya is being uh put on a kind of a show trial for um some kind of a transgression and they're kind of like it's kind of becoming clear that the an era is coming to an end and this this kind of dream isn't going to play out um well she she's become a dissident right right yeah there was something about signing a letter signing a, like a co-signing a letter that ended up being published in the western media but yeah this is like starting to starting to really fall apart here yeah it is like because uh in the the unified system chapter we see the soviet decision makers decide not to continue investing in computer development in the soviet union and instead um just reverse engineer IBMs, right? Um, and that was a complete disaster for Soviet computing. And that's that's why Lebedev is so determined to go talk to Kosygin, uh, because he's like, this is going to be terrible. Like, we'll never recover from this. Like, you're destroying Soviet computing. Right, because it, it condemns them to um, spending a decade reverse engineering a shitty a chip that's like going to be obsolete pretty soon and like they'll they'll always be playing catch up to where the capitalists were 10 years ago right 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 and uh and then the the next thing is that you know all these sort of affordances and exceptions made for the researchers at academic gordok are being rolled back and they're being brought back under political control um and so it's just this this overall abandonment of Khrushchev's thaw, right, and his 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 um his technological ambitions for the Soviet Union. Yeah, and it's very very disappointing um, because there's a strong sense of an era coming to an end here, um, and a, what could have been a very promising track of development being cut short. Um, and that brings us up to um, the final chapter in which we catch up with Khrushchev in his country home, in his retirement. Um, he seems kind of lost without his work. Um, he's sort of like, still even in his retirement, has this very f- future-oriented way of thinking where he he kind of thinks about like all the kind of blood and the sacrifice that went into this kind of program and into the building of this society and that it would have been worth it if it had all been prologue. Like if it if that if all of that had simply been the last spasms of the death of an old cruel world and the birth of a brand new kinder world it would have been worth it but then it turns out it it didn't work out so um he's left with these kind of regrets um of the and i I think this is stuff that like khrushchev was quoted on in fact that like uh when asked about regrets he's like the blood all all of the blood right it's quite a sad ending to the book yeah and you know as somebody who actually sort of believed in this system um and was a good Bolshevik. Um, he's just very crushed. And there's that famous quote from him that they quote here. Uh, Paradise is a place where people want to end up, not a place they run from. What kind of socialism is that? What kind of shit is that when you have to keep people in chains? What kind of social order? What kind of paradise? Um, so, yeah, he's just kind of left with his regrets and... Um, and yeah, I mean, that sort of defense of the, the Soviet Union is like, well, it'll work out and it's all going to be worth it, um, which was sort of like famously formalized by like Merleau-Ponty in, in his defense of the Soviet Union. Um, 
or I mean, many Bolsheviks said the same thing, right? That that they were they're just so committed to this cause, this to this future that they wanted to see realized. Um, and yeah, and then in the end, like, what do we get? Right, we mm. get Yeltsin. Right? <laughs> you know, just just this like Trump tier, disgusting, pathetic worm of a man, right? Um, who's who's just like this puppet of the United States is constantly drunk. Everything's falling apart around him. There's nothing but graft. The mafia take over everything. It's just, you know, complete shambles. This just really society in complete collapse. So, you know, when it comes to the question of like, was it all worth it? probably not no <laughs> right Jesus, of course not. Uh, yeah um you know you can you can say that russia has kind of recovered a little bit under putin but it, it's it's very much just like this sort of desperate clinging to the remnants of stalinism um and uh and and the old institutions of the soviet state in a way that is is about stability and nothing else and still entirely dependent on the uh oil and natural gas revenues that the country can produce right yeah it's got this like it's a i mean i suppose russia's doing fine by what by some metric but i mean it's it's an economy compared to the 90s russia is doing fine it's it's ultimately an economy today whose main export is dash cam footage um i don't know um but the book kind of closes out with um the wind and the leaves of the trees um beside uh, Khrushchev's house saying, you know, can it, whispering, can it be otherwise? And the same wind blows past the window at which uh, uh, Vitalovich is working on, currently on optimizing the manufacture of steel tubes. And it does, it it closes out with a wonderful sort of passage that I'm going to read out. The hard light of creation burns within the fallible flesh, outshines it, outshines the disappointing world, the world of accident and tyranny and unreason. Brighter and brighter, glaring stronger and stronger, till the short man with square spectacles can no longer be seen. Only the blue-white radiance that fills the room. And when the light fades, the flesh is gone, the room is empty. Years pass, the Soviet Union falls. The dance of commodities resumes. And the wind in the trees of Akademogorok says, can it be otherwise? Can it be? Can it be? Can it ever be otherwise? So, I mean, it's a really depressing fucking book, but like it... It does sort of, you know, close out on a note of wondering, like, could it have gone otherwise? Um, or indeed, in the future, can it go otherwise? Yeah, and I remember this book actually provoked a lot of discussion on Crooked Timber, um, which is kind of like a shop blog or was a shop blog for economists. Um, so it did actually provoke ironically this book actually provoked quite a bit of interest in socialist planning because it came out two years after the the crisis really hit in 2008 right so people were like interested like oh well you know obviously the capitalist system is in serious serious crisis what are the alternatives and people really did get quite interested in this book and sort of a much more positive light than you might expect having read it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's like, oh, well. Well, so there's this the... is like an extremely sad and depressing book, but, you know, people do 
take some positivity out of it. Certainly, yeah. Like, and I think it's it's worth breaking down that like um, I think the the sort of damning thing really is that um, initial conditions do seem to rain for the entire duration of some project. That like the the founding of the Soviet Union was categorically flawed in its kind of just the conditions on, under which it started, right? Like that needing to do that socialist version of a primitive accumulation put them in a position where they needed to construct that kind of bureaucracy and that inevitably led to these kind of, um, I mean, inevitable is a strong word, but I think it, you know, it sort of this, it's not really an accident that it played out this way either. Um, yeah, the the, the, the counter, counter example is, is China, right? Where they did the same thing, but then they were like, well, let's just move towards this like kind of pseudo capitalism, right? Like let's let's just rationalize this system by introducing markets and just maintain state ownership to a large degree, but otherwise pretty much just have capitalism with a one party state. Yeah, um, um, but I think there's there is sort of hope though in that like um, the way we're sort of place today uh throughout most like throughout throughout the the sort of the west and throughout actually a lot of the world in general is that like we kind of are in a position to carry through like marx's original sort of idea of a revolution of like developing capitalism to a point where it could then be taken over by um a social revolution um so like as much as i think we can we can learn a lot from the the way the soviet union played out and specifically how the attempt to apply these um, technocratic sort of ideas to the planning of the economy, um, we also need to acknowledge that the, what's described in that history isn't the place that we're starting from now, that there is potential um, to, like, I suppose, re re resuscitate the idea. Or we don't even need to resuscitate it in many ways, because, like, you look at something like Amazon, which is... Um, a like massive uh highly optimized distribution system that's computer controlled you know yeah i mean the the technical material basis for uh the socialism that these people dreamed of um is more or less uh completely non-problematic at this point um that is that is not an excuse or a serious issue anymore no um and the the project for us now is i think mostly uh most like political and theoretical that like i think uh the left sort of needs to do a lot of its homework in terms of like um deep thinking about what a transition into socialism would look like starting from here rather than like larping at being 1914 again right um and yeah i mean we we don't want to be 1917 we don't want to be the 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 kind of developmental dictatorship that the communist parties around the world tended to establish um because we we can see that when you set up that that one party system moving past that um regime is very very difficult um and in the case of a system of economic planning is kind of fatal because um, the conflict between the ruled and the rulers um, is sort of materially manifested in the planning system and isn't papered over in the way that a market system can do. So if, um, 
the planning system is not actually reciprocal um, and democratic and the priorities that are set are, um, you know, bought into, uh, it, it just becomes this sad farce um, that was the Soviet system. So, I mean, I think this book is very much worth reading uh, for socialists. And if we do uh, uh, cockshot and cocktails uh, towards a new socialism, um, I would like to pair it with uh, possibly with uh, Elman's book on socialist planning, uh, because... Um, I do think there's value in looking at these these really hard and depressing examples, and uh, I think I think we should all think about that. I would also encourage us not to become too depressed. Uh, you know, one thing that I sort of found when I was um, in grad school and reading this stuff every day, um, which was you know obviously a pretty gloomy existence (laughs) (laughs) reading about all these all these reasons why nothing is possible and you know it's all doomed to fail right um one thing that that did sort of give me some some levity i guess was actually when when castro died uh not that you know i was as happy about him dying but there was a moment of retrospection on castro's life um that followed his death where even the capitalist press couldn't deny his greatness as a person <laughs> that there was a there I think I think they did eventually manage to bury his memory uh as as, as someone that we can all kind of uh find to be an inspiring person um but there was a kind of moment of a break in the discourse where people actually evaluated him on some kind of different terms that was opened up by his death. Um, and, you know, in that in that moment, I did actually feel like, well, maybe there's more things that are possible than all of these gloomy stories have to tell us, right? Um, yeah, I think so. Um, I think, like, we we should absolutely learn from the uh, the intricacies of how the Soviet Union sort of system played out. Um, I don't think we should be dissuaded in our sort of like pursuit of a better world, though. Like we still want that. And like, I think um, socialists are very often sort of made to carry the cross for the Soviet Union and particularly for Stalin uh, in a way that capital apologists are never made to do for Victorian era fucking brutality. Um, So like, while I think it's crucial for us to understand the kind of um, these examples and to, to start really... I mean, I suppose, like, to kind of rejuvenate the project of really doing our homework in terms of, like, developing critical theories and to developing new ideas for the future. Um, I don't think we should get too depressed about um, how, like, a group of people whose best technology available to them was the abacus um, couldn't make it work, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Right. Yeah. Um, Yeah, I mean, I I think we need to to seriously... uh, evaluate the, the failings of past efforts but also not to diminish uh the possibilities that do exist for us because um you know neoliberalism and the stage of capitalism that we're living in thrive on our despair 
and I think that looking at these very depressing examples can easily feed into that and just lead us to become as cynical as these apparatchiks at the the sad end of the USSR. Um, but we do need to find the possibilities that exist and not to and not minimize them um, because we we're coming at it from a point of despair and and I mean. I, I find this happens to me a lot that, you know, I'm I'm always uh, led by my reading um, to a point of pessimism. Um, and when something opens up uh, and something unexpected happens, uh, like I remember when the Occupy movement kicked off, uh, I, at first I was completely cynical about it. Um, in the end, I was cynical about it. But there was a moment <laughs> where it was like, maybe something could happen here, right? That, that when when the, 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 I mean, for the lack of a better word, when the zeitgeist changes, um, what is possible and impossible in our minds changes as well. There's a there's an emotional dimension to this. There's that levity that they were talking about in the Midsummer Night um, chapter that you know is a is a thing that I when reading that I could feel like yeah that is a thing that I've experienced once or twice in my life that I felt like things were possible and that things could actually change. Um, and I think, yeah, we shouldn't diminish those things just because we're often disappointed by them. Yeah, certainly. I think that's a good place to wrap it up. Um, thanks, listeners, for coming along with us on this. Um, you can find us on Twitter at GIUnitPod. We're on Facebook. Uh, we're on whatever podcasting app you're listening to this on. Um, I've been putting our stuff on archive.org as well so that it will um, you know, live through the apocalypse Uh once uh, <laughs> once I stop paying the hosting on the, uh, the this thing, um, I think our next uh, set of episodes is going to be a bit of a bigger project. We're going to tackle um, all watched over by machines of loving grace, um, the series of uh, documentaries by um, Adam Curtis. Um, that's going to be pretty interesting. So that'll be a three episode uh, bonanza over the next while. Yeah, and it was a partial inspiration for this book. So yeah, it's a good yeah. segue. It's um, like I I think it's it's a really great set of films for me because um I I think I just I was absolutely fascinated with them when they aired and um, they set off a lot of interest in that kind of like um, the intersection of like the applications of technology and kind of how it actually applies to um, society and politics and human lives. Um, we probably wouldn't be doing the show if I hadn't happened to catch that broadcast when I was going out um, all those years back. Yeah, it certainly had an influence on me as well. Mm. Um, maybe I was kind of already in this stuff, but it was it was a uh, pretty impactful. You know? Yeah. So join us again in two weeks. We'll be tackling all watched over by machines of loving grace. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.